Hey, this is Greener Grass, a podcast. We are your hosts, Carrie Wheat and Kelly McVeigh, now part of the Digitent Family Podcast. How's it going, guys? Hope you're doing well. Before we get started, go to the show notes to become part of the Greener Grass family, opt in for our newsletter to get all of our uh, breaking news, etc. We'd love to have you. And today we're so excited to have Lumi Pulliam. He is an opera singer and he is on fire with a capital F. Michelle Obama just uh, called called him out and shouted him out on her Instagram for Black History Month. He has been covered by the New York Times and NPR in the last couple months for all of his most recent success. And uh, he's my old friend from college. He was my dorm dad. And uh, we get the skinny, the scoop, everything all the details. And uh, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this interview. Let's get started. Weird mama. Can you hear me? Oh, hey. Oh, my goodness. Let me see this face. Oh, Lim. What's up? My sister, Kathleen, she uh-huh. she sent me your NPR um, article. And she's like, why do I remember this name so much? <laughs> You should find out who he is. I was like, that's my like <clears throat> dorm dad from freshman year in Barrows. Of course I know Lemmy. Like Yeah. Yeah. I know. He's on fire with a capital F. He's on fire. I know this. <laughs> He's been on fire. And uh and I was just, you know, I was doing a little perusing on the interwebs before this interview. And New York Times just covered you. Yeah. And NPR just covered you. And I was thinking, what an obvious level up to come on Greener Grass after those slightly known media outlets. But you're carrying <laughs> weed. You know, you're you're a superstar in my eyes. <laughs> I love it. So I wanted to share my first memory of you okay. before we get started into this path, this uh this weaving path to success that you have. Um, oh God. Lemmy and I went to this amazing liberal arts college called Oberlin. Oberlin! Uh, everybody I know from Oberlin is very proud. Very proud. Um, it is one of the finest uh, music conservatories in the land. It has an amazing mm-hmm. science and arts uh, bachelor's program. Yeah. I somehow got in to this college. Of course you did. <laughs> Mostly because my sister got in first. Which makes you a legacy, even if <laughs> even if your sister only goes there two years ahead of you. You know, I was at in Barrows, the freshman dorm of all freshman dorms, and um, and I knew I was going to a pro- really progressive college. But we all meet for our first freshman meeting, and the first item on the what we have to decide as a group list is bathrooms. <laughs> oh yeah, that's always fun. What, what did you have to talk to us about as the dorm dad? The, the first big decision you all had to make was whether or not you wanted to have co-ed bathrooms. Yeah. Or if you wanted to leave them as they were, you know, to have a male bathroom, female bathroom, and, or just have a free-for-all, <laughs> you know, that was the first big decision. That, that It was 1995? Five, yeah. Five, you were a sophomore at the time? Mm-hmm. That, that's also incredible to me that as a sophomore that let you be in charge of things. I know. I know. It was <laughs> You know, as a teenager, you're like, wow, that's so cool. We're so progressive. We're going to share bathrooms. There's no gender here, blah, blah, blah. And you said, just keep in mind, you might be taking a shit next to the hot guy down the hall. (laughs) 
Oh, dude, that's true. Yeah, you know, that could kind of make things a little awkward, you know, and you're in there sque- squeezing <laughs> one out and you walk out and he's standing there and he's like, wow. You know what? This is this is going to be way more entertaining than the NPR, NPR podcast with you because you're so professional. <laughs> you didn't have somebody talking about the stuff. That's why it's fun. People like listening to this, I think. Yeah, we both finished there. And, and I remember uh, you and I were friends throughout college and you were I had a lot of friends mm-hmm. in the um the opera program which is where you were studying your story is is a kind of winding road um your new york times article was about the body shaming that you have uh, experienced over the years in your industry um mm-hmm. and from what i understood as a non opera major is that everybody was talking about like, okay, after you graduate, you do your capstone, basically your, your, your big show at the end of your senior year. And then you try to get into Juilliard for master's degree or, you know, Manhattan school of music or one of those top five schools continue your education. And then you try to, the word is not intern. What is the word in your world? When you like, you try to get into a young artist program, basically an intern join a program with that's uh, that's within a larger organization like Chicago Lyric Opera or San Francisco, the Marilla program, or you had the, uh, the Lindemann program at the Metropolitan Opera. And so those were kind of your goals to get into one of those, one of those programs, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, Pittsburgh had a great program. And uh, you know, so that's, that's the road most people wanted to take. Yeah. It seemed like it was very like uh ABCD, like it wasn't, you didn't have a lot of choices um, from what I understood. We didn't think we had many choices. Yeah. But, you know, because everybody thought, oh, this is the way you have to do it. But, you know, obviously there was other ways to do it or, I, or we wouldn't be sitting here today. What was your path that first decade of after school? Well, I, you know, I went, when I left over and I was singing professionally, I didn't go into a young artist program. Um, I was singing with smaller regional companies, Memphis Opera, uh, Delaware Opera, different places like that. And I sang for about two years, two and a half years after I left Oberlin. And then decided to do, uh, you know, just got so tired of everything that was going on. Just tired of the industry, tired of of the stress and um you know, constantly being berated by people within the industry and not having any ways to address it without being, you know, without the fear of, of retribution or being, you know, blacklisted or, you know, labeled as being difficult. What were those things? It was, it was about your, your size, how you looked, um, you know, everyone would, would always say, Oh, you have such a beautiful voice, beautiful voice, blah, 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 blah. But you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. You got to lose weight. You got to lose weight. Nobody's going to hire you if you don't lose weight. Um, you know, and that even started at the, at Oberlin, you know, where, where really, yeah, where people were like, oh, you know, you gotta, you're gonna have to lose weight, you know, if you want to have a career, blah, 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 blah. So it was, you know, it was kind of ingrained in people that you had to look a certain way, uh, regardless of how you sound, um, in order to have a career. And that if you didn't look that way, you were unworthy of a career and you were, you know, you were just wasting your time. I don't know. I just had this picture in my mind that like opera singers were these people with big voices and it didn't really matter. Well, you know, big, big voices, big bodies, you know, that was sort of the end of that era. 
Uh, where things were starting to change and people were wanting to um they were moving into doing more kind of the beginning of the live broadcast era okay um opera and so you know they wanted to be more hollywood-esque and you know to to have people be um in their terms to be to look more realistic in their roles so i guess you know they assume that you know People of size didn't know how to love, didn't know how to be sad, or 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 to portray a character, or or, a, um, or we weren't able to portray um, believable characters. I just got tired of all that, and I I decided to to walk away. You went into security because you were so fed up with the opera industry. I remember I was on tour with the crew, Molly Crew. Mm-hmm. I have a I have a memory of us talking about this during that time. I think I had a moment where like a uh, a fan like rushed the stage and the and Mick Mars's bodyguard tackled this person fly, flying off the stage into the steel. Oh, the barricade! Barricade! Oh my gosh! And got really hurt. Like oh, wow. this huge dude got really hurt and had to go home off of tour because of that. But like he just threw his body like he did not have any. He did not care. He was like, I got to save Mick. Yeah, it's it's it was. Yeah, I did go into security and it was a crazy job. Um, and, you know, there were people like that who would, you know. He has to be willing to just kind of throw care to the wind and and do your job and. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes people get hurt and, and incidents like that where they have to kind of throw themselves between their, their client and, and exu- an exuberant fan, even though that person's uh, goal is not to necessarily hurt them. Yeah. But, you know, exuberant fans are, are almost as dangerous as, as, as a crazed fan. Uh, in their excitement, they can do a lot of damage and, uh, you know, cause a lot of injury. Were you worried about your instrument at all? During that time where you were like, uh, my voice, my face. Not really, not really at the time. It was, you know, I, it was always something I'd been interested in doing. You know, that was the last of my concerns at that point, you know, cause I, you know, I was, I kind of went through what I say, a rebellious phase when I stopped singing. And when I got into the, um, you know, you know, first I went into collections and whatnot and was working in, in, in the collections industry. And then this, um, position and local position opened up and security uh, for a concert venue. And that's how I kind of made my leeway into this as I started working with, uh, which was then Clear Channel um, at one of their venues. And uh, after a couple of years there, I had the opportunity to start my own firm. So I did. And it was, you know, it was then that uh, I, I wasn't really worried about my voice. Um, it was something that I, hid from from a lot of people um though some of the people who worked for me knew about it and they would sometimes you know say to our clients oh you know he used to be an opera singer and i'm like no we don't tell clients that <laughs> you know because someone would be like oh yeah why don't you sing something for me i'm like nope not gonna happen um but i did go through a rebellious phase during that time where um i think i was trying to just you know, self-destructive behavior. I started smoking. Um, what? Yeah. No, you didn't tell NPR that. No. Uh, well, you get a scoop. You get the scoop. Oh, um, so yeah. wait. 
Did you enjoy it? Uh, I, I guess I grew to enjoy it. Like, like nicotine or, or weed? No, no, cigarettes. Okay, that's what I thought. Because when people say smoking, they usually mean cigarettes. So, yeah. Did you, how long were you smoking? Uh, probably two and a half years, two and a half, three years. Shut maybe. the door. Yeah. And do you regret that time? Uh, so, not necessarily because it, you know, it, uh, luckily it didn't do the damage that it could have done. You know, it was part of my path, you know, and so it was, I'm grateful for the path that I had and I don't know if I would necessarily change anything at this point. So at some point you started to work for Barack Obama's campaign, which did you think you're going to go into politics or did you just, I've always been interested in politics. Even when I was in high school, I've, I volunteered, I volunteered for, for campaigns and, and whatnot and would go out and, you know, knock doors and then hang, hang things on doorknobs, you know, and the Clinton Gore was my first uh, campaign that I volunteered for. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was one of those things that's always interested me. Um, you know, I attended Missouri Boys State, which, you know, dealt with, with uh, learning about government and legislation and all that stuff. And um, so it was always something that I, that I had some interest in. And the opportunity came up in late 2007, early 2008, where I was offered a position uh, as a field organizer for Barack Obama's uh, first presidential campaign. And uh, so I was in charge of field, field operations for five counties in oh, wow. Missouri, southeastern Missouri, an area where I grew up and uh, had, had a blast doing it. Who would have thought that joining the political campaign would, would be the thing that kind of led me back to singing? I never did, but it, that's what happened. So the story is that you were working for his campaign and at a particular event, somebody um, wimped out on the, the national anthem, and you were asked to step in and you didn't want to, but you did. Yeah. Did you uh, practice at all that day? No. What? I, I, I wasn't even warmed up. I, you know, I hadn't warmed up in years at that point. So it was just like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to find a key that actually works for me. Right. Okay. Now, because I don't even know if I can, you know, sing all the high notes at this point. So it was like, okay, let's find a key low enough that I can, you know, still sing the lowest notes, but not have to sing too high. And how did you figure that out without practicing? I just picked, you know, I knew what key I used to sing it in. Okay. And I was like, okay, so we, you know, we're not going to start there because I know that's impossible. How many, how many keys did you step down? Uh, I think I went down maybe a, a third. Okay. From where, from where I had been. When I was singing, my low end was about a, a middle C somewhere in there. Okay. So I knew I didn't want to go any lower than that uh, or try to go any lower than that. Um, but I also didn't know, I, I know I didn't want to have to sing, you know, a high B flat or anything like that. Cause I had no clue what would have come out if I had. So at this venue, were you doing it acapella? Yeah. Acapella. Woo! Acapulco, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> so acapella, did you have a pitch? I had a, had a pitch pipe. Um, okay. Back then we still had a little brown pitch. Right. Pipes. You know, now I have an app on my phone that I can just kind of 
beep if I need a pitch with you know. But I uh, had a pitch pipe with me, and and uh, uh, actually, I went and borrowed a pitch pipe from my from my high school choir director. So you knew a day or two in advance. No, when they told me I had, I was going to have to do it. I called her. And I was like, "Look, I need a pitch pipe." How much? How much time did you have between knowing and then doing? It was maybe an hour or two. You were in your hometown. Yeah, I was in my hometown. Okay, and so I'm still like, as a performer, like if I had to, like if I had to dance a performance right now, mm-hmm. which wouldn't be too far off base. There is no way in hell I wouldn't practice before. Yeah, the last place you want to do it is in your hometown. Yeah. No, 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 no. The last thing I would do is not do it once or twice before going on stage. That wasn't my concern. My my thing was like, oh, I'd rather, I wish I were somewhere else other than my hometown doing this because they knew my voice from when I was singing and where I grew up. So they knew what I okay. was love. And the last thing I want to do is like get up and not sound good in front of people who knew how I used to sound. So you didn't have any worries that you could sing it generally you just didn't want anybody to come i didn't know how good it was going to be this is my question after listening to the npr um interview because you said you know obviously you kind of found different things in your voice and it was during these moments of surprise singing let's call it hashtag surprise singing (laughs) were you having that like out-of-body experience where you were like singing you're like wait well, yeah, it started to go up in the range towards the, the you know range in the end. It was kind of like, okay, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> Wait, this note used to be very hard for me to sing. Why is it so easy right now? When I got to the end of it, it was kind of like, okay, that was strangely good, much better than I thought it would be, you know. And I started to analyze it and kind of think back on it and. um then another opportunity, the second opportunity arose for me to do it at one of our staff retreats. And at that one, I actually got brave enough to do it in the key that I used to sing it in. So I was singing it with the high notes. And, and did you practice that time? I practiced that time and did it. But only to, te- but only to test it. Though. Only to test I the notes. To only the to notes test and not to actually practice. Yeah, not to actually practice, just to see if the notes would come out. And they did. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to do it in this key. I'm going to do it back in, in my original key. And uh, yeah, after that, you know, we were kind of in the home stretch of the campaign. And once the campaign was over, I, would, I started, uh, I immediately went to storage, my storage unit and pulled out all my videotapes of lessons and whatnot. And was like, okay, obviously something's changed vocally here. And it's something interesting more interesting than I remember. So why not let's why not see where this is going to go? Where could this lead? And so I started working and studying on my own with my lesson tapes from Overland. So let's let's go to the recent uh the recent last year and a half. Mm-hmm. The thing that stands out to me more um than the success honestly uh-huh. because I'm your friend and I of course I applaud your professional success but you had a lot of loss recently. Um, I remember specifically you you lost your father mm-hmm. in the last year. On uh, Mother's Day of last year, um, March of May 8th. And uh, yeah, it was one of those things we were, you know, it was after 
dealing with the pandemic for you know two years of pandemic, we had managed to avoid COVID in our house. And uh, at the time, I was also helping take care of my dad. Um, I was one of his caretakers. And that week, my mom got COVID and had to go into isolation. And then I went into isolation to hopefully avoid getting it because I knew I had performances coming up um, within the next couple of weeks of that time. So she went in isolation to kind of protect my dad from getting it. I went in isolation to avoid getting it from her. And, uh, you know, the next day I ended up testing positive myself. So my mom and I were both positive and, uh, you know, dealing with the, uh, medications and whatnot and being in isolation and, um, yeah. And then, uh, at the, towards the end of our, our illness, you know, it was just one of those unexpected things where, you know, you get that phone call from, from my, I got a phone call from my older brother and, uh, the first thing I hear are sirens in the back background and he tells me what's going on. And I'm just like, wait, okay, this can't be real. Uh, but it was, you know, it, it, Yeah, one of the the days of life that I feared the most, you know, that I had hoped I'd never have to deal with, but I knew I would at some point. Um, well, but it was, you know, lost my dad Mother's Day, and then the day of his funeral, I literally had to leave home. Um, a couple hours after the funeral to drive to the airport to get on a plane to to fly to my next gig because uh you know my family insisted they were like no you're going to you're going to work you gotta work and uh it turned out to be the best thing for me to be there with my colleagues making music and uh, um yeah it was just it was tough. It was hard, but I'm, I'm, it was the right decision to go back to work. And that, and that gig was one of the big ones. That was the biggest thing, the biggest gig of my career to that point. My debut, the debut with the Cleveland orchestra, Cleveland orchestra. And what, what, uh, what role were you? I was singing the role of Otello and Verdi's Otello, which is, you know, kind of the, one of the pinnacle tenor roles in the, in all of the repertoire. When you were really starting to pick up, what year was that? It really started towards the end of the shutdown of the pandemic. You know, things were before the pandemic, we were building so much momentum and things were starting to happen career wise. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and everything gets shut down. All of these, you know, contracts and, uh, big performances I had scheduled started to disappear. Um, you know, there were operas, there were concert tours, um, things of that nature uh, that that all kind of vanished over over you know several months. And some of them held out until the very last minute. 
and until they had to cancel uh, in hopes of being able to continue, but they, they weren't able to. So going into the pandemic during the shutdown, it was like, okay, if we come out of this, how am I going to rebuild this momentum? You know, we were really starting to pick up some, some steam and then it would it's all gone. This was 2020. This was 2019. We had some stuff starting in the, in the works that were going to be potentially career changing opportunities for me. I remember we were um, like DMing on Instagram because you're going to be in LA for the LA opera. Yeah. Big deal. Was that the end of 2020 or 2021? That was in 2021. And that was kind of the, you know, where I was like, wait, what are we going to do to kind of rebuild this momentum? And then out of nowhere, the LA opera opportunity came about. And so it was like, Oh, okay. This is, this is a good way to come out of the, you know, the pandemic. And uh, so I made my debut with LA opera and Trovatore as Manrico and uh, had had a fabulous time there uh, working with Maestro Conlon and, and the staff and, had a great cast and um, yeah. And that, that kind of put me on this, uh, this new road to, I guess, to, to what some may call success or, <laughs> um, but on the path to where I am now, it's, you know, started with LA and then, uh, you know, did some other things. And then, you know, the Cleveland thing came about after losing my dad uh, went on to Cleveland, sang Otello there. Um, a couple of weeks after Cleveland, I get a call to 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 do a debut with the Philadelphia Orchestra um, because they had a singer sick with COVID and they needed a tenor for their Beethoven Nine performance. Uh, so I went and did several performances of Beethoven Nine in Philadelphia. Yeah, and then the the cover contract at the Met came about you know, to, to be an understudy, um, for Aida at the Met. And then the, not long after that, the call came from Oberlin wanted me to do some performances of, uh, the ordering of Moses, which is an oratorio written by one of their, one of our alumni, uh, Nathaniel Dett. Uh, they wanted to do a performance in Oberlin. And then they said, we're going to do a performance at Carnegie hall. We'd like you to be a part of both of them. I went from wondering how we were going to start rebuilding to, you know, having such great opportunities come my way um, that, you know, I was extremely grateful, extremely grateful for those opportunities and to be back working. Um, I knew how lucky I was to be one of the people who was actually out there still working because so many of my colleagues were, you know, were still kind of struggling to, to rebuild and to kind of regain traction and to start rebuilding their schedules after the, you know, things begin to open up. I don't, I don't take any of the opportunities that have come my way for granted because of that. Going back to the issues that you had the first decade of your career, what has changed there? Is that your voice changed and that overrides some of the other stuff or has the industry changed enough? Well, I don't know. I don't necessarily know that the industry has changed, but I know I've changed. Um, 
you know, one of the important things is that I've, I took the time to, to kind of learn to love myself for who I am, for what I am, where I am in life and to not let, um, the opinions of others dictate my self-worth um, or what, or how I felt about my self-worth. Um, I began to, once that happened, I was able to um, kind of turn things around for myself with regards to auditioning. Um, whereas before I would walk into a room and I realized I wasn't walking into that room as confidently as I could um, because I knew that at some point they're going to say something about my size. Um, so I knew I had to make some changes in that because I was walking into the room already defeated in a way. Um, so now, you know, upon learning to kind of love who I am, I can walk into any room knowing that I belong there. Um, no longer do I walk in with my head down, trying to, you know, minimize myself to take up less space. Um, you know, now when I walk into a room, I want to eat up as much oxygen in that room as I can. Um, I want to take up all the space. This is my room. Oh, I love that. And 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 I'm just going to allow you to have a little bit of space over there in my room. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is maybe this is growing up and being in our in in our forties and you know mm-hmm. not early not early forties <laughs> anymore, Lemmy. I that resonates with me so much in in both ways in in seeing you. Um, I, I have to say too. I I think I found my voice the way it should be maybe last year. Mm-hmm. It took me that long. Like, oh my God, I can't even tell you how, how many years of my career. I just want my eyes to be bigger. I just put on so much makeup Yeah, because I just wanted these big eyes, like all the white girls. And, <laughs> and I wanted to be taller and I wanted, I don't, I don't know. It's, and the whole time you were fabulous just the way you were. <laughs> And, um, and the way I see you, maybe that should be the lesson to, to everyone out there. It's just like, if I could have figured out how to be so confident in who I was earlier, not just to make me more successful, but just to, for more happiness, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm so glad that you got to, to that point and in, in time for this moment of your life and, for me in time for the moment of organically passing it on to a bean. Yeah. Cause I think it's happening. I mean, look at her sassiness. Yeah. That sassiness yeah. doesn't come out of anything but confidence. <laughs> how, how do, how does one as a teacher or somebody like you, who's, who can be such a role model to others? Um, how can we help people find that sooner? Cause I don't know if we can. It was a painful road for both of us, you know? Yeah, it, it was a painful road, but I don't know if we can actually help others. I, if we can, I haven't figured it out, but it's a matter of just, you know, because everyone's journey is different and there's no set way to get to, to get there. Um, you know, for me, it was a matter of, 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 of having to take 
these detours through other industries and which eventually led me back to where I was supposed to be. But that may not necessarily be the route, the route to take for, for other people. I guess it's a matter of just taking the time to be comfortable with yourself, comfortable being alone. Gets hard when other people are saying the exact opposite to your face. Yeah. And it can be, especially as you know, a young artist um, who's in the beginning of a career um, doing many, many auditions. And if they're constantly being berated with, you know, critiques from auditions and critiques about their, their, you know, their body and, or their, their voice or, you know, whatever it may be, all of that can make it extremely difficult to get to that point where one can be loving and accepting of oneself and realizing that, you know, despite what others may say that you're enough and right where you are right now, you're enough and you're worthy of, of a potential career in this industry or whatever industry it may be. And that your size or your look or your voice shouldn't be a hindrance to that. The power that you exude in your voice, in your confidence, in your body coming out of your pores. It's amazing to see. I've always seen you that way. I mean, you were my dorm dad. So obviously (laughs) you're always like (laughs) in a position of slight authority. Um, Also, not that much authority because we would all stumble home from the SCO. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a pretty lenient dad. dad. (laughs) What's your favorite moment? Or a poignant moment from all, all, all the most recent um, success? Uh, it had to be having the opportunity to make my Metropolitan Opera debut. And to stand on that stage where all of my operatic heroes have stood. Um, and to look out into that auditorium. Um, and... To walk from behind that gold curtain at the end of the night, like so many of my heroes had done before me, and to kind of stand there and have the audience greet you with this amazingly generous applause, um, and in the midst of that, to have the, the opportunity to kind of reflect on the last year of my life, um, you know, thinking about my dad. Um, thinking about my eldest sister who also passed away in November Um, and just about the journey in general. It was just, it's one of those moments I will never, ever, ever, ever forget. Um, You know, because we always strive to be um, as artists, to be vulnerable in front of our audiences and that was the instance where I think I've allowed myself to be my most vulnerable. Um, and, and thinking about my dad, thinking about my sister, thinking about my family, um, thinking about all the teachers who had poured into me over the years, voice teachers, music teachers, um, um, everyone who's been a part of the amazing support system I've had over the years. 
um, to get to that moment. And to be able to stand in front of an audience who's on their feet clapping and not be <laughs> ashamed to just let the tears flow because that's, that's what I was feeling in that moment it was just this overwhelming. Um, in that moment, I felt the overwhelming joy, the overwhelming uh, um, losses that I had experienced. All of the emotions from all of that were just kind of whirling around there. And all I could do was just kind of hold on. And as I say, hold on for the ride. And, and you know, they just kind of manifested themselves in these tears, you know, on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera, which some people may have been embarrassed about. But in that moment, I was... I, it was it was all I could do. It was you know I couldn't hold it back any longer. I'd been holding so back so many different feelings and emotions for so long um, to kind of get through the work and just to be able to continue on singing. You have to compartmentalize and suppress and you know different feelings and whatnot and. You know, it was in that moment that I knew I could just be in the moment and feel and not have to worry about anything else. And so I did. I cried like a baby on the Metropolitan Opera stage during my battles. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some people might be embarrassed by that. But as a as a person that is a lover of art, if I go to see an opera or see a ballet, you know, I don't necessarily feel like the emotion is shared between the artists and the audience mm -hmm. all the time. Like you go and, you know, I've been to many dance dance performances where I cry like a baby as an audience member because it's touched me in a way right. or, or especially when I was younger, I really wanted to be that person. I, I remember seeing Savion Glover tap dance on, on Broadway and I, I cried like a baby, <laughs> you know, th that type of thing. And it's very rare that the, the performer shares that um reflects it back at you and it really connects with i mean of course you're connecting with your performance but that wasn't your role anymore that was limmy yeah you were being limmy at the end of uh, at your bow you weren't being your character yeah. anymore and i think that is a really rare experience for the audience and now for the greater audience because of youtube to see somebody um you know, you're my dorm dad, but for for most part, you're you're at the top of your game. You know, opera singer on the, one of the biggest stages of the world, and and you are just letting yourself be vulnerable, and that teaches other people to do the same in their own lives. And so, yes, maybe that would be embarrassing for some, but I feel like as an audience member, maybe that's when they connected with you most. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that people need to see that vulnerability sometimes. And, and it's so great that the story is shared. You, you know, you're not just in these roles, but you get to share your story and your pathway because it is inspirational to others, you know, for anybody out there who's like in any industry, who's been shamed because what they look like or what they sound like, or, or, you know, their personality um, to be able to find a way back to it, to find a way back to it with so much power. I'm proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And I'm also 
grateful to see that the world has decided to get out of your way. <laughs> like, get out of the way, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming anyway. So yeah, you know, you're coming anyway. I love this. Like, move or, 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 you know, or get knocked out of the way. Yeah, like that whole taking up space. I think for the young people out there who's, you know, young in their career, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like your time is is as valuable as anybody else. And Yeah. We only we only have one life to live, so we have to do make the most of it. This this part's going in the end of podcast. I have to say, New York Times and NPR, I got a better interview. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I think I keep in touch with you more than probably anybody else from that time period. Um, from who are my, who are my dorm kids? Eat your heart out, <laughs> NPR and New York Times. Yeah, so I, I I I look forward to seeing your new roles in the next year or so, and then uh, maybe we'll have you back to talk about them. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Lemmy, I am so psyched that you came on the podcast, excited to catch up with you, and I am so excited for your success. I cannot wait to see uh, how far how far uh, this rocket ship goes. So I am so happy and excited to share your story with our audience. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have you back. Uh, thank you so much to Asa Watkins, sound engineer. And if you guys would honor us with a five-star rating and a review, it means so much to us. Just smash that five stars, leave us a sentence. Uh, we'll highlight you on our website and yeah, have an amazing week. We'll come back at you guys. I have an update on my, uh, my medical stuff next week. It's, it's amazing. All right, guys have an amazing week. Over and out, this is Greener Grass with the Digitant Family Podcast.